0: Junkies. Hello and welcome to episode 19 of Celluloid Junkies. I'm Luke Kane and I'm joined by Damien Heath. Hello. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm good. This month we are smashing every light bulb in this studio as we explore Terence Young's 1967 domestic thriller, Wait Until Dark.
1: Audrey Hepburn, the role you're going to remember whenever you're alone. Okay, you
0: behind the door? She's a lost kid it still don't move.
1: She is blind, and she is alone, with a terrible suspicion growing. Glory, I know you're there.
0: went right down the list and told me that the doll linked Sam
1: and Mrs. Rote. And now Mrs. Rote's dead. Murdered right next door. But maybe I was wrong. That doesn't matter. If you thought that way, the police will think that way.
0: <laughs> well, see... <it's- laughs> London, 1952. British playwright Frederick Knotts' Dial M for Murder, the first of only three he would ever write, enjoys successful runs on both the London and New York stage. Two years later, he adapts the material into a screenplay for Alfred Hitchcock, and the film version is released to wide acclaim. He doesn't write his final play until 1966, but when it premieres on Broadway, the public agree that it's been worth the wait a home invasion chiller about a blind woman who becomes the unwitting target of three criminals on the hunt for a heroine-stuffed doll, wait until dark enthralls audiences with its meticulous plotting and nail-biting finale. Realising its potential for a film adaptation, Warner Brothers acquire the rights for one million and producer Mel Ferrer convinces his wife, screen star Audrey Hepburn, to accept the lead role. Although disturbed by the dark material, Hepburn accepts the offer, hoping that by collaborating with her husband, she might save their disintegrating marriage. Ironically, filming the emotionally demanding scenes will only inflame an already bad situation, and they separate a year later. Hepburn negotiates a $900,000 salary plus 3% of the film's gross. The couple lobby for their friend Terence Young, who helmed the first four James Bond movies to direct. Hepburn first met Young when she and her mother nursed him back to health after he was wounded in the Battle of Arnhem in 1945. Jack Warner resists Young, whose productions are famous for going over budget. He wants Carol Reed, but Hepburn is a major coup for the project and Warner doesn't want to risk losing his star. Richard Crenner is cast as Mike, the more sympathetic villain. For the least sympathetic, wrote both George C. Scott and Rod Steiger turned down the part and it goes to up-and-comer Alan Arkin prolific cinematographer Charles Lang is hired as DOP. It will be his fifth collaboration with Hepburn. Monday the 16th of January 1967, Wait Until Dark begins its 11-week shoot in Greenwich Village, New York. The production runs on European hours, filming from 11 a.m. to 7 p.m. each day. Hepburn has spent weeks at the Lighthouse for the Blind, learning Braille and practicing to complete tasks while blindfolded. She resists wearing contacts to dull the expressiveness of her eyes because they irritate her, but Warner overrules her. A four o'clock tea break becomes an increasingly elaborate tradition on the wait until dark set. Arkin films his first scene and the crew are baffled by his unconventional approach to the character. Concerns mount that he isn't menacing enough. Hepburn incurs multiple bruises bumping into furniture while shooting, particularly during the climactic scene with Rote. She misses her son Sean, whom she had to leave back in Switzerland, and receives little support from Ferrer, who acts more like an agent than a husband. By the time production wraps on April 7th, she has lost 15 pounds. Ferrer screens the film for Jack Warner. In the scene where Roth springs out like a cat at Susie, Warner jumps out of his seat in fright. He turns to Ferrer and gives him an enthusiastic thumbs up. The film premieres at Radio City in the US on October 26, 1967 to record-breaking grosses. A trailer for the movie warns audiences that during the last eight minutes the house lights will be darkened to the legal limit to heighten the terror of the breathtaking climax. It becomes the 14th highest-grossing film of 1967. Hepburn's performance garners raves and she receives her fifth and final Oscar nomination. She will not make another movie for nine years. In 1981, Stephen King's non-fiction novel Dance Macabre is published. In it he writes of Wait Until Dark. The last 15 or 20 minutes of that film are utterly terrifying. In my view, Arkin's performance as Harry Rote Jr. from Scarsdale may be the greatest evocation of screen villainy ever, rivalling and perhaps surpassing Peter Lorre's in M. You took uh,
1: half my research there. Did I really? Yeah, half my research, just gone. So this will be a short episode.
0: (laughs) So, um, Damien, tell me what you thought about Wait Until Dark.
1: I'm not sure when Warner bought the rights to Wait Until Dark, but I have a feeling it was not too long after the book was available. The play. Oh, yeah, sorry, the play was available. But I'm not sure it had even started running yet, and Audrey Hepburn apparently wanted Warner Brothers to state Uh, you know openly that they had cast the movie and it was going to star Audrey Hepburn because she had received a lot of criticism for stealing Julie Andrews role in My Fair Lady from the stage yeah and so she didn't want to be seen doing the same to Lee Remick
0: yes who would uh only a few years later become a legitimate screen actress that's right in The Omen so anyway what did you think of Wait Until Dark
1: yeah um Wait Until Dark I've seen it a few times before it was great fun It's a really fun home invasion thriller. I think there's uh, something about that genre which makes those films just so watchable. Even the bad ones, like uh, Nicole Kidman and Nicolas Cage in Trespass. Like, even that's fun to watch. (laughs) Um,
0: It's the second time you've brought up that movie on our show. Is it really? Yes. (laughs) When did I do it before? I think you were whinging about Rex Reed's review of We Need to Talk About Kevin, and that he liked Trespass more. That's true, I did. Well, I first saw it after becoming obsessed with Breakfast at Tiffany's when I was about 16, and I was particularly, I guess, fascinated by Audrey Hepburn, as so many people are, continue to be. Wait Until Dark came as a surprise, because I'd seen Charade, Roman Holiday, Funny Face, My Fair Lady... And then this movie comes along and it's so gritty and sadistic and vicious and it's just nothing that I associated with Audrey Hepburn from what I knew of her filmography.
1: Your journey with Audrey Hepburn would have been similar to a st- cinema audience's journey at the time.
0: Yeah, I suppose that's true. I was particularly taken with the last 20 minutes of the film. I think I was watching the movie and I was kind of intrigued. The plot felt a little overly convoluted, I think I was mostly lost the first time I watched it, but it didn't matter when it got to the scene where she smashes the bulbs and everything that happens after that, the film goes into it, shifts into a a very powerful gear. As I've kind of rewatched it over the years, because I I do, I absolutely love it, I'm more interested in the characters and, and how it deals with issues of psychology, particularly for people who have a disability, and what independence means for people with disabilities. I think that it's very, very good at exploring those ideas. It gets better every time I see it. It's interesting, Alan Arkin said that the more you show people wait until dark, the less work they have to do. And I think that's very true. Hmm. It came out at a very significant time in American films history with the new Hollywood movement. So it was released in October of 1967, as I said at the top, and Bonnie and Clyde came out in August. And... Bonnie and Clyde kind of heralded in this cultural shift in American films where creative control moved away from the studio and toward individual filmmakers. And so movies changed as a result of that. They became very idiosyncratic, um, more closely aligned with adult attitudes about modern life. They more closely reflected the social and political disillusionment that was arriving with the Vietnam War. So we had these films that had kind of lost their innocence, the fluffy innocence that we saw with the whole Sandra D, Doris Day, Audrey Hepburn kind of filmmaking. And we got all these punchy, angry films that had a very distinctive voice and weren't trying to appeal to everyone. I think you can feel that shift happening when you watch Wait Until Dark. There's a little bit of the old in it, and there's a little bit of the new creeping in. So I just think it's a very interesting film in those terms. There's still kind of an old Hollywood storybook feeling about it, but then there are these influences like the heroine and the brutality of the ending where you can feel this change at play.
1: And also, I guess that's uh, what Audrey Hepburn brings to this role as well. You know, Audrey Hepburn's a major movie star for the decade and a half at least prior to this movie. So you take in there all of those preconceptions about her and her characters and her movies, and it's kind of uh, turned on its head. And and I wonder if uh, that changing uh, style of filmmaking had anything to do with her moving away, finding it easier to move away from acting as well. Um, Because certainly this is not her bread and butter when you think about Audrey Hepburn, this kind of movie.
0: I looked for some quotes. I really wanted to get her her feelings about Wait Until Dark. And I couldn't find any. I mean, she was ultimately Oscar nominated for this performance. I think it's an incredible performance, particularly because this week I've been kind of watching films that are n- neighbouring films to Wait Until Dark, and it's amazing how many actresses aren't convincingly blind. I think it must be one of the trickiest things to do. Mm-hmm. But Audrey Hepburn looks blind immediately, and you believe she's blind throughout the whole movie. She has this way of, of sort of gazing off into the distance that gives her this far away look. And her eyes are set in the right direction as she's talking to people. They're not on people. And, I mean, that's just one element of what she's doing. I mean, she also evokes fear on this primitive level. She makes the most awful sounds, you know, a kind of
1: retching sounds
0: as she's being tortured. And you really do feel like, oh, this woman's fighting for her life. And then on top of that, you've got what I think is a performance about somebody trying to cope with depression. We'll move into that when we talk a little bit more about the characters. But I think that's a very interesting point that you make. I think you're probably right that maybe the shift had something to do with Audrey's departure from the scene. I think probably mostly it was because she wanted to raise her sons. Yes. So, you know, the new Hollywood movement, it was influenced by the French New Wave and the Italian neorealism movements that were going on in Europe that kind of predated Wait Until Dark by a number of years.
1: The opening of Wait Until Dark. I was surprised because in my memory it was a lot cleaner than it was when I watched it this time. I guess you think of 70s America and 70s American films, early 70s, late 60s, early 70s, and you start to think of places like airports and travel and how kind of mass market that kind of thing became for people, you know, prices dropped and the amount of people traveling by air increased. So this this film, you know, it opens at an airport and that's kind of fitting for the, you know, to usher in this new Hollywood era. But it's a pretty gritty film print. You know, it's not clean like uh, clean and big budget like My Fair Lady was a few years earlier. It's definitely it looks a bit down and dirty this film, and that surprised me a little bit that it looked like that because I had remembered it to be a cleaner film. Yeah, I guess you would usually think of a home invasion thriller as somewhat low budget compared to uh, most ma- major releases, so it does have elements of that.
0: And I think that suits the film.
1: It does, yeah, absolutely. It, it really does. My name is Alfred
0: Hitchcock. You know, a lot of people talk about this film as the non-Hitchcock Hitchcock Hitchcock movie. Mm -hmm. How did it rate for you against some of his films that are comparable? I mean, obviously the one that springs to mind immediately is Dial-In for Murder, because it's by the same playwright, but also something like Psycho or those sorts of films. Yeah, I mean, look, there's a lot
1: of comparisons between Wait Until Dark and Hitchcock, and I guess you have to go back to people had probably been expecting Hepburn... Uh, to make a Hitchcock movie because she had been previously involved in pre-production on one of them Uh, and you know depending on who you speak to Hitchcock hated her after that project fell apart or it just fell apart and nothing like that ever happened. She's a different kind of actress than most of the actresses that Hitchcock casts and I think she probably works better in a film that's not directed by Hitchcock than she would in a film that's directed by Hitchcock. But there's there's a lot of links to Hitchcock. the the single location setting for much of the action really echoes Dial M for Murder. Obviously, that's a a product of the play, or being even the rope. source material and rope. Yeah, definitely. The woman in peril who turns the book on the would-be murderers plot and becomes the killer herself. Uh, again, dial-in for murder. And I think there's similarities to one of Hitchcock's major works that we've looked at in the past, which would be Real Window, where both films feature a protagonist with a physical impairment. Uh, in this case, obviously, Susie's blind and L.B. Jeffries has his broken leg. Uh, and both of those are used as somewhat of a means of overcoming their threat. And I think that you can make a case that the characters in Wait Until Dark are preying upon... Susie's new blindness so this is a new impairment something she's still getting used to and they they make such an obvious statement of saying that she's learning to cope with this doing different things being forced by Sam to do a lot of stuff herself being forced by Gloria to do some things herself but also her own references to her blindness and and saying that she needs to be good essentially be good at being blind the three assailants who break into her house are essentially gaslighting her. They are making her think that Sam is having an affair and Sam killed this person and, you know, that he's hiding this doll for reasons that she doesn't know and and all of these different things. So shes they're basically getting this person, they're preying upon her deficiency, She's, she's newly blind, she must be scared, and they're trying to make her feel like she's got to do something that she doesn't really have to do, almost like she's going crazy. And that echoes two of Hitchcock's early American films, which are Suspicion and Rebecca. I mean, what do you think about the comparisons that say, yes, this is something that Hitchcock could have directed?
0: I'm sure most people know what gaslighting is, but for those who don't, gaslighting is a term that it began with the film Gaslight, which stars Ingrid Bergman, where her husband is trying to convince her that she's crazy and hearing spirits and everything.
1: It means using, I guess, plot elements to to drive someone crazy, and Rebecca, it's his previous wife. Yeah. the idea of his previous one. But wife. I mean, it's
0: become a very contemporary issue, and particularly a workplace issue, where managers are being accused of doing it to staff, you know? Well, why are you angry? What is your problem? When really they are the ones making you angry, they are the ones presenting you with the problem. But they're able to, using language and using syntax, turn it around so that the person is made to feel crazy. Hmm. Yeah, there is certainly an element of that in this film, for sure. How I think it relates to Hitchcock, content-wise, it's something that Hitchcock would have probably leapt at doing. You know, if it had maybe been five years earlier, it probably would have been something he would have optioned and yeah. been interested in.
1: I think Hitchcock was working with Universal at the time. Right. That Wait Until Dark came out, and obviously Warner got the project, whereas Dial-In for Murder, I think, it was a Warner film. Mm. And obviously Hitchcock was working for Warner or doing films for Warner at that time. So, you know, that kind of fell into his lap. And maybe if Universal had got the rights or if Hitchcock was working for Warner, he would have got the rights to Wait Until Dark. It does seem like a natural fit.
0: But... The film itself doesn't feel at all like a Hitchcock film to me. I don't think anyone could confuse it for one. I mean, the photography compared to Hitchcock's is pretty rote. Uh, you know, it's not overly stylized. The director doesn't insert himself into the film. He's sort of it's it's shot in a very simple, formal, clean kind of way. Yeah. There's no sexualization of the leading lady, so if anything, Hepburn's beauty is turned down here. You know, she's often lit in shadow. Her Givenchy clothes have been replaced by these drab off-the-rack clothes, sweaters and pencil skirts. And they, these clothes kind of accentuate how gaunt she is, how thin she is. And you compare this to her appearance in Two for the Road, which came out two months before this film. She's absolutely stunning in Two for the Road. But here she looks pretty drab. There's, there's no attempt to sexualise her, even though Rote is trying to rape her. There's no winking in Wait Until Dark. It's kind of missing the Hitchcock humour. It's a very, very serious film. There's not really any laughter in it whatsoever.
1: The dialogue, especially at the start of the movie between Susie and Sam, and then ongoing between Sam and Mike, once the caper starts, is missing any of the double entendre that... Hitchcock is so good at putting into his movies, uh, you know, missing, that is, uh, I mean, obviously that's a sexual mechanism that Hitchcock used in his movies as well. And it's missing all of that.
0: Yeah, there's nothing Freudian going on in Wait Until Dark. Everything is what it is. You know, the, the, the lines mean what they mean. There's no room to interpret them any other way. No.
1: It's far less playful.
0: Yes. And I think the ending of the film is more savage than anything we get in a Hitchcock film. I think it's more protracted because the director sort of steps out of its way and just lets it play out. It might also just be the writing, but with the exception of Psycho, a couple of scenes in Psycho, I think Wait Until Dark is is a more savage film.
1: Well what think. scenes in Psycho would you say are as the shower scene. But the shower scene is so stylized even, I mean it's a series of shots, that music and then yeah. pulling down the shower curtain and the zoom into the eye and I mean, there's so many things in the shower scene in Psycho that are representative. And there is nothing in Wait Until Dark that is representative. It is what it is. That's what you get. You know, it's a true horror ending.
0: That's right. It is a true... And maybe that's what makes it more savage for me, is the fact that it's sort of just awful. (laughs) And there's no subtext going on.
1: I think also something you could say for it is that, you know, if, if you've got somebody who's going to a hotel that seems, you know, a little bit iffy and she only stops there out of necessity... That she is already in more peril than somebody who is at home uh, and safe in their own home and blind. So, and blind, yes. I mean, look. Even if you take that out of the equation, being attacked in your own home is uh, feels far more savage than being attacked in a in a hotel room. And that's purely because you should be safe in your own home.
0: And the other thing is, there's a lot more sadistic foreplay with Rote than there was in Psycho. In Psycho, the shower curtain opens and the slashing starts. Yeah. In this film, he's putting a cloth dangling a cloth over her head looping a cane say, around her neck he makes her say please can i give you the doll hmm. he uses fire and throws gasoline all over the room there is so much yeah. leading up to that final moment where and he comes at her with the knife it's not
1: in really any of those later hitchcock movies the the post 1950s movies that there's a villain quite like alan arkins wrote in any of hitchcock's films
0: yeah <laughs> Are you going to give me that, doll, Susie? I can't. I don't believe you, Susie. I can't. I don't have it anymore. What is that? Stop it.
1: No, I'm not going to ask you again, Susie. So when you want to tell me where it is, you're going to have to tell me.
0: I can't. It isn't here.
1: You're lying again. Susie. Oh, what is that? it's just just my hand
0: almost every time I've shown someone wait until dark there's been one point in that ending where people just say oh that's awful and it will always be a different thing like when I watched it this time for the podcast I was watching it with mum and it was the bit where he puts she's on the stairs and he grabs that cane and he loops it around the back of her neck and leads her down the stairs that way mum said that's a horrible thing to do I remember when I saw it with Cass years ago It was when he was using that cloth over her face and she was saying, what is that? What is that? She just said, he's awful. Like, you know, it seems to, that ending always upsets people.
1: I think another difference is that Hitchcock has a, probably a greater knack for writing meaningful dialogue. You know, his his films have a greater knack of using meaningful dialogue, whether he wrote it or not. And every line contains some kind of clue about something else in the film, or it has some kind of double meaning. It's used to intentionally throw the audience off. It's something that Hitchcock loved doing. And I think his camera is used to cleaner effect, so if there's something in the frame in a Hitchcock movie, you should probably pay attention to it. And there's not many directors like that, and certainly, you know, Terrence Young isn't one of them. His film plays faster and looser with dialogue and on-screen action and mise-en-scene, as most films do, whereas Hitchcock is a perfectionist and has the ability to be one, again, not many directors do.
0: To go back to something that you touched on, just so that we can let our audience know about it, the Hepburn-Hitchcock movie that never was, it all kind of happened in 1959. It was a project called No Bail for the Judge and it was based on a Henry Cecil novel. It was a story of a London magistrate wrongly accused of murder, and his daughter, Hepburn, would go undercover to vindicate her father by discovering the real killer. She has to kind of go into the seedy world of London prostitution. Apparently, Hepburn wanted to work with Hitchcock, was a big admirer of him, loved his movies. She signed a contract in 1959, February, and production was set to begin that same year in August-September. On May 15th, she received a script... And on May 19th, she backed out of her contract. And there have been various reasons, uh, reported and misreported, as to why this occurred. Lawrence Harvey and John Houston were attached in smaller roles. They backed out when Hepburn backed out. And Hitchcock ultimately walked away from the project. So, you know, everything from Hepburn got pregnant and didn't want to go back to work so soon after having a baby. Unfortunately, the baby turned out to be stillborn. Other things have said that she objected to a scene Hitchcock had added where her character is sort of raped Marnie style and choked with a necktie. But again, I couldn't find any sources that went, "Yep, absolutely. You know, it was all conjecture.
1: And what I read about that is that possibly because this is during a really rich period in Hitchcock's filmmaking career where in 1958 he released Vertigo. In 1959, he released North by Northwest. And 1960, he released Psycho. So, you know, to have been around that time, you can only imagine what kind of film this would have been when it when it got released, if it got released. And I had heard that because he did North by Northwest with Warner Brothers, and then his next film, Psycho, was released by Universal, that he was in the process with his manager of switching from Warner Brothers to Universal. And Warner Brothers had the rights to the screenplay. Audrey Hepburn had taken some time off after the birth of her child and when Hitchcock had finished doing the promotion for Psycho or finished doing the filming for Psycho and started doing the promotion it spent so long doing that that he had pretty much switched over to Universal and the project still being in Warner's hands it just kind of fell through because Hitchcock was no longer attached to it for that reason as well. So, there's a, there's a lot of different stories about why that didn't occur, but certainly being in 1959, you know, shot 1959, released either late 1959 or early 1960, you can imagine it would have been a pretty spectacular film.
0: I did end up looking at that article you suggested, which was writing Hitchcock about No for the Judge. Mm-hmm. That was really good in terms of conveying the whole story and all the different. So, if anyone's interested, we'll post that link in our show notes. Yeah. Uh, you can read all about it. Let's talk a little bit about the one location. Which is
1: obviously, uh, I mean, a product of the play. It's, <laughs> you know, when you've got to change sets in a play, it's a lot more difficult than changing locations in a movie, to convince an audience, that is. So I guess that's, uh, as we said, one of the major comparisons between Dial M for Murder and Wait Until Dark. Uh, they're both taught thrillers set largely in one location. And that location was Four St. Luke's Place in Greenwich Village, New York, which is a, a, a massive, expensive suburb on the island of Manhattan. And it's also right next door to the 1980s home of the Cosby family. And one thing I really like is that uh, Susie, despite being blind, she leaves the light on for us. So we can all see what's happening in this movie. (laughs) So I really appreciated that. Because she knows she's going to get a higher electricity bill. She doesn't need the light. I think one of the advantages to the film adaptation is that cinema can be used to great effect in making settings feel either large or small. Obviously it's the latter in this case and I I think Young closes us in with Susie throughout this movie gradually putting us into the same corner that she's forced into during the film's climax. So we're right there with her. As the lights are going out the the space gets smaller, the amount that the audience can see gets smaller until she's trapped behind the bridge and we're in total darkness. You know, if that is true about the lights being turned off in the cinema, the audience that's watching the film at this time is in the, the same total darkness. So It really is using all of its technical advantages over a a stage play to its advantage. It's giving us sight and sound and room and then taking it all away from us one by one, plunging us into darkness, trying to remain silent and still.
0: I really like it. I think it works very, very well in the third act. The first two thirds of the movie are so plot-heavy and... The one location which all blends into this kind of dull brown camel colour can start to fatigue the eye a little. It's interesting that Terrence Young starts by opening us up on this expansive airport space. And we get get to stay there for a little while. But then very, very soon we start to shrink into that apartment and then we're kind of locked in there. And as you say, that apartment just grows smaller and smaller until we get that one of the final shots, which is not shot from Susie's back, but from her front, essentially where the wall would be. And we can just see her thin frame wedged between the side of the refrigerator and the wall as she's fumbling for this refrigerator cord, trying desperately to find it.
1: Just quickly, one thing that I guess it really bothered me the first few times I saw this movie was that... Who would hide behind a fridge and face away from the killer coming towards them? And, of course, it doesn't fucking matter because she's not going to see anything anyway because she's blind. And it bothered me so much that someone would do that because nobody... Everybody would hide facing forward so that if the killer came and opened the door or came over the top of the fridge, you could see them. Right? Am I right?
0: Yeah, but she's trying to find the refrigerator light. Yes, I know, but... It's her only chance.
1: But she's, she's... blind as well so that you know it's not even an option and you've got to you got to watch some of that scene by going hey there's there's a, there's different elements of play here than if it was a sighted person i think it really uses that to its advantage because it makes it almost scarier that she's facing away
0: it does you're right absolutely and i think the film is very very good at exploiting her blindness the very first horrifying moment of wait until dark for me is when she walks into her wardrobe and puts on her scarf, and as she throws her scarf, she brushes or disturbs the hair of Lisa's corpse, which is hanging in a body bag on her closet door. That's a great visual, that scene. Yeah, it's so morbid and creepy. But then the film does it again and again and again, like when he's reading out the number to the police but dialing a different number. Yeah. Or when he's she's scared and he has to take off his glove to hold her hand. You know, it's constantly reminding us that this woman is being... Her, her disability is being exploited in the most cruel and undead well, way. Well,
1: also the fact that these three people who go to her house before she's introduced in the movie are hiding in plain sight, so to speak, and they're right next to her. Yeah. And she says, Gloria, I know you're here.
0: The framing of some of those shots is pretty extraordinary. Mm. He places them at different levels in the house, and they're in the shadows. And it's just eerie you know, to see a woman who thinks she's alone walking around her apartment, and we know she's not. Do they know that she's blind
1: at the start of the movie? So before they go in there and before she comes home, do they know that she's blind?
0: I think they must work it out pretty fast because she's tapping with her cane to get in.
1: I think they do work it out pretty fast, but Rote says go and stand behind the door, which wouldn't have been effective if she wasn't blind, because she obviously she would have seen him.
0: Yeah. Certainly Rote knows whether or not the other two know. Mm. I think what choice do they have? You know, yeah. she's coming home, they just stand there, and then, oh, okay, luckily she's blind. <laughs> yeah.
1: <laughs> All could have fallen apart at that point if she wasn't blind.
0: One of the choices that I love about the film is that the apartment is below ground level. Hmm. And as the night comes and as the situation gets more and more uh, drastic, that starts to feel like a grave. Particularly when she's under near the fridge and you're just so conscious of people's footsteps going through that window. The only other thing I'll say about the one location is that when Mike is about to leave for the last time after Susie's worked everything out and Roke comes up and kills him, stabs him from behind, Mike falls down the stairs. Susie doesn't know what's going on. She's just screaming out Mike's name. And as she's doing that, Rote turns, he closes the door, and then he puts that steel chain around the door. I think that by then we've been in the apartment so long that when he does that, he's not only locking Susie in, he's locking the viewer in. Now we feel like we can't get out. (laughs) At least getting out was an option because that door was never locked. But now we can't get out. And that's that elevates the excitement or elevates the intensity of watching the film
1: yeah and that immediately followed that line by mike uh susie asked what's he going to do now and essentially you think that it's over at this point
0: so, well because you think Roat's dead
1: well yeah you you think Roat's dead but also mike isn't proceeding with looking for this doll he's about to leave the apartment so yeah you think it's over at that point and then it's that's taken away from you
0: Left hand drawer,
1: the doll. Glorious it's I'm gonna ask you once more. This is no time for mistakes. Are you sure the little girl saw the doll there? Are you sure this is all true?
0: I'm saving my husband's life, aren't I, Mike? So with regards to the plot, I mean it is It is very convoluted and very complicated. I think it does take quite a few viewings to understand everything that is going on, all the particulars of what's happening. Because the audience is asked to follow three strands of plot. They need to know what actually happened to the doll, first of all. And we don't find out what actually happened until maybe an hour in. Because Gloria took it. When we see it under the couch. Well, when Gloria brings it into the apartment and puts it under the couch. We need to understand what the criminals are trying to convince Susie happened to the doll. And then we need to understand how the criminals are associated with one another and what their individual motives are. So we need to know that, okay, Lisa had a doll stuffed with heroin and she was meant to, I suppose, share that with Rote, but she planned to double cross him. And he ambushed her at the airport. She quickly gave the doll to Mike and then went off with him. She knew that the only thing that was going to keep her alive, which is exactly what Susie knows, is that if she doesn't give him the doll, that's the only thing that's keeping her alive. And then we need to understand that the criminals are trying to convince Susie that Mike was having an affair with Lisa. Sam. Sorry, Sam was having an affair with Lisa. That he killed her and left her body in Asbury Park, and that the doll is the only thing that is tying him to the murder, so Susie better find the doll, otherwise Sam might go to jail. And then we also need to know that, well, actually what happened was Sam took the doll home, tried to find the doll, couldn't find it, contacted Lisa, said he couldn't find it. Now, Lisa at that point was obviously calling him with rote, standing by her with a knife, saying you better call him and get this doll back. That's presumed. And um, the reason he couldn't find it is because Gloria took it to her little apartment and then, and then brings it back in the middle of all of this unfolding. It's very complicated. There are a couple of things... That people have raised about the plot that they consider holes. And I just wanted to talk to you about them, okay? So you get your thoughts on them. Why does Rote dress up to play three different characters when Susie is blind?
1: Uh, that's a good question.
0: <laughs> well, a lot, of people, a lot of people say that and it irks me. And I'm really, really glad I've got this podcast platform to explain <laughs> it to everybody. The reason that he does that, at the very beginning when they're in the van, he says to them, there's a little girl running around the apartment. Yeah. And the first time he dresses up as the old Mr. Rote, he slams into Gloria on her way out. Yeah. So he, you know, of course, it's not just going to be for Susie's benefit. He knows she's got friends in the building. He needs to make it convincing for them as well.
1: Which I guess leads to another question. If he knows this, it all falls apart a little bit later when Gloria is watching them all. (laughs) Outside in the van.
0: That's right, but only she only starts to watch them because Susie starts to cotton onto what's happening.
1: Yes. However, if he'd been more careful
0: at that point, if they parked a little further down the street, if they parked a little further down the street, yes, I, that's all it would have taken. Yeah. Why doesn't Susie lock the door until the very end of the film?
1: Oh, Roger Ebert asked the same question. She doesn't because she trusts Mike.
0: And for the longest time, she trusts Carlino and wrote
1: and. I mean, not only that, but it wasn't locked in the first place. I assume if you're looking for a reason, you could say that she tends to probably have visitors. Her impairment makes it more difficult to get up to the door. Uh, So there would be a reason for keeping it open.
0: Yeah. When she does discover that Mike's a part of it, she locks the door. And then Mike has to key his way in using a shard of glass, I think, or something... But he has to, he has to kind of break in. So she, I mean, for the longest time, she thinks she's being visited upon by a police officer and by Sam's old army buddy, Mike.
1: Yes, that's the one. We're we're both getting the names wrong. This is how convoluted this plot is. (laughs) And Mike and Sam, they look the same.
0: Yeah. (laughs) But when Susie does start to realise... She does lock the door. It's just that this is a home invasion movie where, for the longest time, the home invaders are welcomed guests. And so she doesn't know she's in a thriller. We know because we can see the body hanging in the closet. We can see all these awful things happening to her, but she can't see them. So I think it's fairly ignorant um, criticism of the film to say, why doesn't she lock the door? Um, Now, the third thing is why does Rote hatch this complicated plan to get Susie to give up the doll, it involves two other people and all of this blah, 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 when he could just torture her for it, which ultimately he does anyway? I don't know. Yeah. Why did not he just break in and sit her down and say, give me the doll or I'm going to rape and murder you? And then when she gives it to him, rape and murder Do you her. have an answer for that? For me, the only, <laughs> the only way that I can... Yes, I do. <laughs> the only way that I can justify it is Rote is so sadistic. I think that all of it is kind of part of his sexual thrill. I think he wants to psychologically torment her and fuck with her. And so he and he probably has a little bit of resentment towards the two Lisa accomplices. So it's his way of kind of Because he's holding all the strings, you know. He's like he's brought them in. He's given them their roles. He's told them what the story is. He's, you know, manipulating Susie. I feel like it's all part of his sexual foreplay with Susie—is just to to fuck her up with all of this stuff. And I don't think that even from the very start he had any intention of ending it any other way. He knew that ultimately he was going to go in there and get what he wanted. And there's a very very early giveaway of that, which you might not have noticed. But when Rote first comes into the apartment, is having the little. Conversation with Carlino and Mike. There's a bit where he goes over to the laundry and he is wiping his glasses mm. and he grabs, I don't know, like a blouse or something of Susie's and he sniffs it. So <laughs> I think the film almost in a way gives it away what he what, how this film's going to end at the very, very start. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, that's true. So that's a little detail I'd missed.
0: So, I mean, you know, Susie says it's more than the doll with him and I think that was always true. This is about him being violent and wanting to be sexually gratified by by raping and murdering her.
1: After that ten minutes of explaining the plot, we can now say that the plot doesn't really matter. <laughs> the doll is uh, what's called a MacGuffin, uh, which is uh, you know a plot device that an object that propels forward a plot, but which is ultimately unimportant. And this is another thing that Hitchcock did all the time. in for Murder had the spare key to the apartment. North by Northwest had the microfilm with government secrets. Psycho had the embezzled $40,000 envelope. None of them were important to the happenings of the story, but all were the, in that way, key pieces of that film. And the doll doesn't matter, but we need it as a justification here. The story is revolving about, around why and how, and who came into the contact with the doll, and for what purpose all serve one purpose, which is to get inside the house and torment Audrey Hepburn. And in that sense, the plot is effective because it is so complicated, because if we'd been allowed to follow the plot more clearly, then we would have needed to make sense of it in our heads. But all we need to do as an audience is feel sorry for the poor blind woman who stole our hearts as many iconic characters throughout the last two decades. And if that is achieved, as it is in this film, then the film
0: succeeds. And I think the greatest thing that the plot does is that it makes Susie a victim of her handicap and then flips it. Mm. So at the end, her handicap empowers her. It is her advantage over-wrote. is the thing that's going to keep her alive because if she gets that room pitch black, she has a year's practice over-wrote. That's right, yeah. And that's what's so compelling about the story and compelling about those final few and moments. And we'll look,
1: we'll look at that a little bit later because uh, we'll talk about Don't Breathe as well. Now, go to the bedroom.
0: Mr Rowe, hmm? are you looking at me? Yes, sir. <laughs> Stop!
1: Stop! Don't touch that!
0: What do you have to say about Hepburn in this role? Did you like her in it?
1: I think she was probably far more iconic. ...than pretty much uh, anybody working in Hollywood at this point. She really had to be. She was coming off the number one film of the year success with My Fair Lady. So she brought with her, as we've said before... ...she brought with her all of the ideas of her as both an actress... ...and as a movie star into this role. And when someone like that makes a film like this... ...it heightens its reputation... ...and adds an authenticity and respectability to the genre. And I think this is different... ...very, very different... Than another film we've looked at in the past, which is whatever happened to Baby Jane, because Betty Davis and Joan Crawford were in no way when whatever happened to Baby Jane came out, in no way as big as Audrey Hepburn was when Wait Until Dark came out, and that's nothing to to say nothing of their past because we love them so much, but certainly by the early 1960s, they weren't working as constant as consistently as Audrey Hepburn was in A-level big-budget projects. I really like this article by The Dissolve, uh, and they said, uh, Hepburn plays Susie with a sympathetic mix of pluckiness and self-pity, and she lets the audience experience both Susie's intelligence and her anxiety as she figures out why and how her three dangerous visitors align to her. If Hepburn has a 1960s type, it was characters who'd already experienced a deep hurt and had become skilled at sniffing out the garbage that men tried to foist on her. I really like that, and this knowledge of Hepburn's past ultimately gives us a sequence during which Gloria rings her phone twice and Susie realises that Mike, the only man she trusts in this triumvirate, is also lying to her. And we feel Susie's pain through Hepburn's really explicit performance here, as she holds her stomach and she screams, and I really love that this is strangely reminiscent of what Mia Farrow would do the following year in Rosemary's Baby. Mm. (laughs) And I guess if you take those two films, because they're they're so close together, I think it's really fun to look at those two films together, the performances of the lead actresses.
0: I think that's a very interesting article. I hadn't read that. And it made me think of Charade, because in Charade, Cary Grant lies to Audrey Hepburn about who he is and his name five times. You know, every time she finds out that he's lying, he gives her another lie. Hmm. And she's constantly batting away these lies. But obviously that's done in a very light, romantic, fun way. So it's very interesting to flip her essential archetype on the screen and make it now that she's having to find out all these lies from people who mean her ill or mean her very serious harm.
1: And I think this is also one of those films where, you know, there's so many films that come out with Hollywood A-list stars and you go, oh, that person's going to take me out of that movie. And there's films where you you watch it and you go, oh, it's good that there were no big stars in this because I really was able to see that person as a character mm. rather than as the actress or the actor th- that was playing them. So there's, there's times when the presence of a star doesn't allow us the suspension of disbelief that is necessary for a movie. But Hepburn plays Susie so nuanced and her history is used as a, a kind of gravitas by the audience. Her appearance in the film heightens the sense of oncoming, never-ending dread that Susie faces. Because if it had been a nobody, I feel like we would have cared as much as, for instance, we care about Carol Kane in When a Stranger Calls.
0: Yeah, definitely. I think the fact that this is lovely little Audrey Hepburn, who is all just lightness and roses, (laughs) and now there are horrible things happening to her. I think that makes the film much more gripping.
1: And if you look at something like this versus Grace Kelly in Rear Window... I mean, the comparison between those two roles is so stark. You look at Wait Until Dark and you look at Grace Kelly and you think, well, Grace Kelly was never in any danger. No. <laughs> you know, it's it's completely different. It's like night and day.
0: But I mean, Grace Kelly never had the screen power or presence of Audrey Hepburn. No. And the other thing as well, Grace Kelly was kind of chameleon-like. You know, you could kind of put her in anything and she would be okay. The
1: point I'm trying to make is that Rear Window and and Grace Kelly's role, and and until Psycho, the role of Hitchcock women, was not to do what Audrey Hepburn does in this movie. It was to look pretty. And it was to be the star and, you know, be put into situations that were dangerous. But I guess they were never in that kind of danger that you suspect that, Audrey Hepburn is in in this film.
0: No, the peril feels very different. Yeah. One interesting thing about this film, probably the thing that I love most about it, is that, and and it's probably the central message, if there's a human message in Wait Until Dark, it's this, Sam is constantly making Susie do things herself, to the point where, you know, at one time, exasperated, she says, do I have to be the world's champion blind lady? And he turns to her and emphatically says, yes. And it's interesting that Mike is always running to do things for her. You know, he puts out the fire. It's the very first thing he does when they meet. He's handing her things. He's calling numbers for her. I'll go to Sam's studio and get the doll. He very quickly conditions her to become dependent upon him. So the people who mean Susie well, her husband, Gloria, they're always making her do things herself. Mm. Whereas the people that mean her harm, like Mike, Carlino, even wrote, they're always superficially helping her. Even at the end, when Sam enters the apartment and finds Susie cowering behind the refrigerator, in a rather kind of exasperating thing, he makes her find her own way to him. Yes, and, A bit
1: beaten beyond an inch of your life, yeah. and within an inch of your life, and now walk
0: to me. And look, it is a little uh, on the nose, it's a little heavy-handed, but I, I think... Audrey Hepburn in that moment when she kind of stumbles into him and holds him. Her performance is so earnest that that always gets me when she grabs onto him and calls him Sammy and holds him. I mentioned earlier about how I thought that there are indicators in the movie that Susie Hendrix is struggling with depression. Two things. The first is she's very chirpy and very saccharine in a lot of the film. You know, when she knocks on the door and he's like, who is it? And she goes, Batman. <laughs> Oh yes! Yeah, she's always making these terrible jokes, and like she's always saying, oh, "truly,
1: truly terrible oh, jokes."
0: I'll be the there one reading some, Peter Rabbit in braille.
1: There is some really bad dialogue in this movie. <laughs> I mean, I know it's no, yeah. it's meant to be cutesy,
0: yeah, <laughs> but it's it's almost almost like a parody of happiness, mm-hmm. and maybe that is just bad writing. But when you place it next to, you, there are a couple of really genuine scenes, and they're the scenes where she has her little quibble with sam where he says to her yes you do have to be independent and she goes well then fine that's what i'll be tell me what you want and that's what i'll be that's a beautiful moment in the film and it's elevated by mancini's nostalgic beautiful score the best moment that illustrates susie's depression is after gloria's tantrum When, you know, she says, I wish I could do things like pick out a necktie or, you know, cook a souffle. And she goes, and I know I look dreadful half the time. And then Gloria says, no, you're gorgeous. And then Susie says, what a lovely thing to say. Mm. Gloria says, well, you know, we can't have everything. I'm not gorgeous. So, uh, and it's such a lovely, sweet, beautiful moment. But the fact that the character switches or vacillates so dramatically from this over-the-top, cheerful, bad jokes, happy as Larry person to suddenly breaking down and and talking about what she can't do and how sad she feels, that, how inadequate she feels. To me, that's a symptom of depression. And I mean, look, a year ago she was in a car crash and it was the fire from the crash that made her blind. As you say, this is someone still trying to come to terms with what's happening to her and and this new life that she has. I think all the characters in this film that are good are suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder. Because Hepburn has some real issues with fire. Sam was in the war, but Susie makes a point of saying to Mike, he's never told me about it. Mm -hmm. Gloria has two parents who are going through a divorce and they're not interested in their daughter. And she obviously has some rage issues. So all the good people in this film are fucked up. Did you close the door? Yes. But I didn't hear
1: it shut. Okay, so it's open. Please
0: shut the door. Close it yourself, you're near. Gloria, close the door. No! Gloria! No, I won't! Listen, you little monster, I won't put up with this one more minute.
1: Arkin actually, he got a lot of criticism for his performance, for being a little bit over the top. What did you think? I feel like he's pitch perfect. Yeah, He's a foil to the other two who are less over the top than him. He's got an understated level of brilliance and deceit that allows him to overcome a later double cross at their hands. And um, I think his dark sunglasses, which he wears inside, almost reflect Susie's blindness in a way. I don't think that there's a suggestion that they're alike, but I think that there is some kind of,
0: like, they're kind of perfect inverses, like... So there's a precursor to
1: them being the last two alive. Yeah. He's, he's uh, I guess, he's what you'd call a criminal mastermind. Um, he's using pawns to his advantage in this, this game, and those pawns are expendable, as we see in successive sequences, wherein he kills Carlino in a car park and kills Mike by stabbing him in the back with his Geraldine pocket knife.
0: And has already killed Lisa bef- like pretty much yeah. before the movie starts. Yeah. And, and by the looks of it, raped her because that brassiere is hanging off. It's very suggestive of sexual violence.
1: So we have to conclude at this point that in the film's climax, Susie is likewise expendable. So one of them must die. Uh, I love Alan Arkin's quote uh, when he was asked about why he didn't get an Academy Award nomination. He said, you don't get nominated for being mean to Audrey Hepburn. <laughs>
0: I love his line where he's like, I cannot negotiate in an atmosphere of mistrust. <laughs> but I think it's interesting that we actually don't know his name. We yeah. call him Rote, but he's not Rote. Well, he's- his
1: character is... the car- One of the characters he plays is Harry Rote Jr.
0: He seems oh, no. to have come out of nowhere. And he's just this unknowable monster. Ark instead of Rote... That, you know, he gets unleashed when he resorts to violence, until then he's a snake. He's on every conceivable drug, and they're all counteracting. He's in a constant state of negative neutrality.
1: And there's so many little things that he does in the background, which is so interesting to watch. Like, when he cuts the phone line, you know, there's action going on at the front of the frame. And I think it's
0: Susie... And Mike. And Mike are talking... And she's telling him that the doll's at the studio.
1: And he is on top of the stairs near the front door and he uses his cane to lift up the cord from the phone and cuts it with his knife.
0: And then ties it around the stairwell. That's horrible, which obviously leads to that great moment Audrey has where she undoes it and realises that the phone isn't working and she just holds on to the bars. And that's the utter terror moment. Like, oh my God, I'm now alone in this apartment. I don't have a phone and he's coming to kill me. He is really great. I love him. Because he's just so serene when he walks into that apartment. You know, that Barker looks a little lumpy. And he's like very like, you know, almost like a mockery of a 1930s gangster. But then when he pulls out that knife for the first time, it is so sudden and sharp. Such a great weapon.
1: I love that weapon.
0: Yeah, Geraldine.
1: It's uh, reminiscent of something like the Venus de Milo statue. And, and, you know, it's a piece of art that contains something so deadly and that's obviously how Rote thinks of himself it is almost his work of art to do these things
0: did you know they wanted to kill me i did i knew it even before they did they were awful amateurs and that's why you saw through them i saw through you too no not all the way susie even now not all the way it's interesting when we were talking about M that we talked about this separation between career criminals or petty criminals who, whose motivations are money and things like that. And then the kind of criminal that Peter Lorre is, which is a psychosexual deviant. And that we experience that here, that there is a definite bridge separating Mike and Carlino from Harry Rote Jr. Another thing that's interesting about the film is the idea of this middle class world, which is where Susie comes from colliding with the criminal world, which is represented by Lisa, Mike, Carlino, and Rote. As the film goes on, the line between those two worlds blur. Mike starts to understand Susie. He even starts to admire her. And Susie begins to understand Mike and even Rote, so that by the end of the film, she knows what needs to be done to survive, and she does it. It's outside of all of her middle-class norms, this behaviour, but she, by the end of the film, understands that that line has to disappear, and she has to meet him at that level. That is what it's going to come to. And I love that those two worlds just slowly, slowly, slowly get together until at the very end of the film we have the representative of middle-class civility. And... The definition of sadistic, murderous cruelty, and they are in the dark and they are at war.
1: Uh, Cinephilia and Beyond wrote an article and they said it's Hepburn and Arkin's dynamics that ultimately steal the show with his flamboyant, never quite over-the-top performance as the embodiment of pure evil and her passionate, fully dedicated interpretation of a seemingly hopeless woman in ultimate peril finding the inner strength to come out victorious in the end. I just want to read you this quote which, have you read Terence Young's quote on trying to convince Audrey Hepburn to take a film role? No. He said, first of all, you spend a year or so convincing her to accept even the principle that she might make another movie in her life. Then you have to persuade her to read a script. Then you have to make her understand that it is a good script. Then you have to persuade her that she will not be totally destroying her son's life by spending six or eight weeks on a film set. After that, if you are really lucky, she might start talking about the costumes. More probably, she'll just say she has to get back to her family and cooking the pasta for dinner, but thank you for thinking of her. The 1960s were obviously a very different and adventurous time for going to the movies because the climax of this movie was mentioned in the trailer, as you stated earlier, and it was also in other promotional material, including the poster. And that's another move reminiscent of Hitchcock, who didn't allow anybody to enter screenings of Psycho after the film had begun. Uh, The Psycho posters, for instance, stated that, very theatrically, that the manager of this theatre has been instructed at the risk of his life... Which is, which is really great. And you pair Hitchcock with, you know, Wait Until Dark saying that the lights will be turned down and, and people like, uh, William Castle? Mm -hmm. Was it? Yeah. And the 1960s were, I mean, it just feels like they tried to do things quite a bit differently back then. And I think that's, I think that's great. And, and that they utilize all of the technology at their disposal to heighten the end of this movie. But also that this this uh, movie still stands up now without any of that theatrics.
0: That's the key. I mean, look, it's fine to have it. I mean, it's essentially a gimmick, turning out the lights at the end of the movie. Yeah. Which is William Castle. It's like Castle. the ghosts
1: in William Castle movies flying on on the rafters.
0: Or like the buzzers in the bottom of the seats to give people the tingler feeling. <laughs> yeah. The fact that the film doesn't need it yeah. to still be very watched doesn't hurt the film at all, you know? What I love about the ending is this power dynamic, and it essentially comes down to who's got the gasoline, who has the matches, who has the knife, and is there any light? And those four things, and the they change this power dynamic between Rote and Susie, and they keep changing, and it makes their interplay very compelling. It's a brilliant conceit that Susie's desperate hope, in the last few seconds, is to turn out the light. Mm. When you see that fridge door open, you don't think, what an
1: idiot. And, and I mean, that's, uh, again, you go back to the start of the movie and Carlino helps himself to a plate of meat that's in the fridge. <laughs> yeah. And the fridge is so loud. And you think, geez, that's a loud fridge. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and, of course, that's what tips Audrey Hepburn off that the door is open at the end of the movie.
0: Yeah, that's right. There's not a moment in the script that's wasted. Mm. It's so taut and there are all these recurrences that come back. Almost everything that's mentioned comes back.
1: The other instance of that is when Susie realises that Mike's in on it too. Gloria has been instructed, if somebody steps out of that phone box, call me twice. Okay, she knows she's in danger. But then she gets the call from Mike and, oh, okay, yeah, thank God it's Mike. But then she gets those two rings again, and that plot device of that being used more than once Mm. is really used in in such a a crucial manner in this film. Uh, That's probably my favourite little part of the movie before the ending. Of those devices. Yeah.
0: Even though we know Mike's in it from the beginning, we don't expect that double phone call to happen.
1: No. That's right,
0: and when it does, it's emotionally crushing for her, and it makes sense.
1: And also because Gloria has just done her job in such a, a, a great manner, she's done exactly what she's asked, but it's going to break Audrey Hepburn's
0: heart. Yeah,
1: that's uh, and I think but that's, also save her. Uh, but also save her. Yeah, that's true.
0: Just to go back to those final pulsing moments of the film, if Roe can't see Susie, then he's stabbing in the dark and she has the advantage. It not only works as a terrifying cinematic device to take our vision away, and therefore, for the very first time, put us in Audrey Hepburn's shoes. We can't see anything. But it makes so much sense from a character's perspective that if she can get that refrigerator light off, then she stands a chance with him. I'll just say one more thing about the ending. A lot of our international listeners won't know this, but sexual violence against women has become an issue in Australia over the last couple of weeks, and it was triggered by a stranger rape and murder of a young comedian named Eurydice Dixon in Victoria. Just a few weeks ago, she was walking home from a gig. It was late at night. She texted her boyfriend to say, almost home safe, and she was found the next morning in an oval. She'd been raped and murdered and a 19-year-old boy has been charged with her her rape and murder. Victorian police issued a Facebook post that told women that they needed to walk in pairs, that they shouldn't be walking alone at night. It gave them all of of this list of things that they need to do to protect themselves and it's upset a lot of women because women have responded saying well we shouldn't have to amend our behavior we should feel free to wear what we want to walk home at night by ourselves and why don't men stop killing women that's the problem not the fact that women need to walk home alone at night on one hand it's true that even these tiny slights against women pats on the bum or sexual harassment in whatever on whatever scale you know the, the extreme end is what happened to Eurydice Dixon. And so therefore even small shows of misogyny or harassment can't be tolerated because they are on that same arc. But on the other hand, police can't stop men from killing women. I mean, they can certainly try to, they do everything within their power, but ultimately there are going to be these aberrant males that do this stuff to women a lot of people have said that these warnings are completely legitimate and fair and that unfortunately that is the world we live in women need to take precautions to put it back into the context of this film the the ending uses a lot of stylistic devices to heighten the excitement of watching susie almost get killed you know we have shadowy lighting we have the score we have the editing. The threat against Susie is primitive, it's terrifying. We can see him inching towards her and stabbing the blade into the floorboards. Um, He's been stabbed, so he has this kind of Frankenstein-like rise up as she's cowering under the refrigerator. But we don't watch this scene hoping Roat will kill Susie. And when I say we, we, I mean generally, because a few people will. (laughs) Few people like whoever did that to Eurydice Dixon might watch this and they might become sexually aroused watching this sort of violence. And that brings the question up about whether or not this is actually ethical, this sort of filmmaking, to heighten the excitement of the suspense if there will be a select group or faction of society that will watch it and that it will feed into their sadistic fantasies and their violent fantasies. One thing that I do love about Waiting Till Dark, and I say this having just seen a movie called *Sin no or Evil, which is sort of a similar film to this, is that no man comes to the rescue. Sam's late. He's very late. Susie does it herself. No man walks in and shoots rote dead and saves the day. Susie has to do it on her own. She has no weapon, she is blind, and she is alone. And she wins. Ford concrete walls, buried phone line not connected to the house's main line, they have your own ventilation system, and a bank of surveillance monitors that covers nearly every corner of the house. What's to keep someone from prying open the door? Steel, very thick steel.
1: My room, definitely
0: my room. Let's talk a little bit about the movies that this film's influenced. One that immediately springs to mind, huge hit over a decade ago, was Panic Room. David Fincher. Mm. I love Panic Room. But I don't think it's aged as well already as Wait Until Dark has. And I think that that's mostly because there's an immodesty to Panic Room. There's all these technical flourishes. It's very rigidly controlled. I don't feel as close to the characters. I think there's less emphasis on the characters and more emphasis on the director. Fincher's films tend to be a little over-concerned with aesthetics and technique at the expense of characterisations.
1: I would agree with you. And uh, if anyone's listening who can make it happen, put Panic Room on Blu-ray.
0: There's a great moment in Panic Room where Jodie Foster goes around and smashes all the cameras and all the glass mirrors, and that is so evocative of the scene in Wait Until Dark. I remember when I was in the cinema watching Panic Room in 2002, I thought, ah, it's a little like homage to this film. Also, Panic Room has a scene where the particular psycho of the three, so I guess the rote character, charges towards Jodie Foster and he's got a sledgehammer and with every inch that he gets closer to her, he slams that sledgehammer down very much in the same way that Rote is using the knife to inch forward by stabbing yeah. it into the floorboards to get to Susie. So there are a lot of similarities and homages in that film.
1: They both take place in Manhattan. Wait until dark in the Greenwich, Vill- Greenwich Village, which is to the south of Central Park, and Panic Room is in the Upper West Side, which is obviously to the Upper West of Central Park. So they're both on the island of Manhattan. In Panic Room, the threat is very immediate uh, to the tenants of the home. They're, They're aware that this is going to be a game of survival on several levels, both against the oncoming threat from the assailants and with the daughter against her illness later in the movie. So the device the film uses to engage us is this race against time, coupled with the very specific claustrophobic setting of the titular panic room. The film almost takes wait until dark and makes it just the last 15 minutes in an even more enclosed space for a protracted period of time. That the intruders have so much room in this four-story house and therefore so many tools to use in their quest, and conversely the protagonists have just one small space with limited resources, is a really good juxtaposition that I think this film uses to its advantage.
0: Do you want to talk about the next film that we raised as a...
1: Yeah, so Don't Breathe we mentioned earlier, and that one came out a couple of years ago. I guess very similar to Panic Room in that it's got a blind person and very different to Panic Room in so many ways. It utilizes blindness very effectively, and I really love the way that this film does that. It it first uses it to elicit sympathy from the audience. A blind veteran's house is being robbed, not to mention that he's recently lost his daughter, and what the thieves are looking to steal is the money that he got from a settlement for the death of his daughter. But then we switch our allegiance to the intruders, once we find that the blind man has restrained a young woman in his basement. His blindness is used as a plot device to add to, rather than detract from, his capabilities. It heightens his other senses, and there's this awareness that if we're in total darkness, the intruders are at a disadvantage because the blind man is used to this. He, he has heightened other senses, and he is able to tr- almost track you like a, like a sniffer dog. So when he plunges the house into darkness, like Susie does in Wait Until Dark, The playing field is turned to his advantage as it is turned to hers. Mm. And I really love that about both of those movies, that they do that.
0: Don't Breathe is really good fun. It kind of almost spirals into incredulity by the third act.
1: Oh, absolutely. It's so full on. Yeah.
0: It shares a similarity with Panic Room in that the camera is very athletic and there's a lot of CGI. It really gives us a sense of space and location. It's directed by, I think his name's... Alvarez, I might not be saying that correctly, but he's re- he was responsible for the Evil Dead remake, which I'm a huge fan of, not, other, not many other people are, but I really liked it. And you're right, I really like that it uses his handicap in that way, first to evoke sympathy, and then to evoke menace. Yeah. One other film that's a very obscure one that I mentioned earlier was a film by Richard Fleischer called Sino Evil, which I watched last night. It's a British film that stars Mia Farrow as a recently blinded woman, from a horse riding accident, oddly enough. She's visiting her uncle, and while she's out with her boyfriend, her entire family are murdered by a psychopath. And so she comes home and spends the night there without realizing she's asleep amongst all their corpses. That sounds and- like a lot of fun. <laughs> it takes a long time for her to realize that, you know, there's one in the bed next to her, there's one in the bathtub, there's one in the sitting room couch. We see them, but she's walking around not like completely uh, unaware and oblivious to them. The film is far more simplistic than Wait Until Dark, it's nowhere near as busy. For the first half it essentially plays like this kind of very British drama about a woman who's coming to terms with her new life, and then the last part of it plays similarly to uh, Wait Until Dark. I would recommend it to anyone who hasn't seen it and really is a big fan of Wait Until Dark, it has a lot of similar ideas in it, it's worth checking out.
1: A little bit of a history of home invasion thrillers. They were pretty few and far between up until the 1960s. And uh, Wikipedia actually has a, a, a nice list of home invasion thrillers, and it lists just 14 prior to 1960. Seven of those were in the 50s, so that means seven before the 50s. And the first official home invasion thriller was 1909's The Lonely Villa. But from Roman Polanski's cul-de-sac in 1966 through until the end of the 1970s, there were 30. They were made steadily throughout the 1980s, 21, 1990s, 28, and 2000s, 27, and have hit a high point this decade with 46. And a list of just a few key home invasion thrillers would include Key Largo, Dial M for Murder, Cape Fear, Lady in a Cage, A Clockwork Orange, Straw Dogs, The Last House on the Left, Of Unknown Origin. The Academy Award Best Picture Winning Gary Busey Vehicle Hider in the House. (laughs) Home Alone. Pacific Heights, Funny Games, Panic Room, The Strangers, The Purge, You're Next, Knock Knock, the Netflix-produced Hush, Don't Breathe, and Mother. Obviously, Wait Until Dark has been a massive influence upon so many of these films. Straw Dogs in 1971 particularly dealt with a sexually violent home invasion, which really is just the continuation of Roat's late threats in this film. I guess a lot of the violence in these later films can also be put down to another 1967 release that we've talked about, Bonnie and Clyde, which is notorious now for having pushed the boundaries of on-screen sex and violence. So you've really got the perfect storm when you take those two films together, Bonnie and Clyde and Wait Until Dark, to create something like Straw Dogs, which set the standard for so much that followed in the 1970s, including horror films like The Last House on the Left and I Spit on Your Grave. And a common part of so many of these films is the Woman in Peril storyline, and generally they're the target of the assailant, often for sexual or platonic relationship purposes, although this has been turned on its head in recent films like Knock Knock and Don't Breathe. The Woman in Peril film generally gives us a compelling character arc, where the usually more timid and slight female protagonist overcomes her bigger, rougher and more intimidating male antagonist at the end of these films. Excellent recent examples of this are Panic Room and Hush. And uh, home invasion movies are pretty successful because they represent the loss of safety from that one place where we should all feel safe, which is our own homes. Vox wrote an article called Horror Movies Reflect Cultural Fears. In 2016, Americans feared invasion, looking at both Hush and Don't Breathe, comparing them both to Wait Until Dark because of the trope of the victim suffering from a disability. And it also looked at the reason that the home invasion film has been so popular this decade is because Americans fear invasion from other countries. They fear immigration there's so many things that are represented on a, a macro level of somebody entering your home mm. uh, is similar to the on the micro level of uh, of a lot of people entering a country and so that's been used to the advantage of cinema in the last decade in a 2017 article in the UK's telegraph Newspaper. it was determined that if a person grows up feeling safe and loved in his or her family, then a stranger is more likely to be perceived as a potential threat. Whereas if your family is unstable or dangerous, you're more likely to trust strangers and see them as potential rescuers. And I wonder what that says, if that says anything about Susie.
0: Or maybe that's why we love home invasion thrillers, because we came from protective, safe homes. yeah. Interesting that you raise that idea of immigration at the moment, considering you know Trump's oh, yeah. rescinding of his policy and everything. And and in the last three or four years, I mean, this has just taken off. And
1: Trump was uh, started his political campaign three years ago. So,
0: well, I suppose the people that voted Trump in, which was well, we're led to believe, which was the majority of Americans. Uh, do have this fear about people coming in because that's what he promised. But then when the actuality of it came in, we had all this outrage.
1: Yeah. Oh, I would hate to say it's a majority. I mean, less than a majority vote for a president in a US election. So it's never going to be a majority of Americans, and I don't think we can say that. And then even less of those people probably agree with specific parts of what that person stands for. But, yeah, certainly a a huge percentage, bigger than we would like to think, agree with the idea of stemming or stopping immigration based on um, kind of cartoonish fears.
0: Paranoia about immigration is really just racism in a different form. It is, yeah. Absolutely. Yep. Damien, why don't you take us through Wait Until Dark's release and reception?
1: 1967 was a stellar year for cinema. Among the highest-grossing films of the year were Mike Nichols' The Graduate, Stanley Kramer's Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, Arthur Penn's Bonnie and Clyde, and Norman Jewison's Best Picture winning In the Heat of the Night. Hepburn had already been a massive star for many years, and 1967 was her last year acting full-time. After this, she'd take less and less roles, as she devoted her time throughout the 1970s and 1980s to family and humanitarian projects. In 1961, she'd had the runaway success of Breakfast at Tiffany's, and she followed that up with the highest grossing film of 1964, George Cukor's My Fair Lady, which is a lovely film. Late in October of 1967, just before Halloween in fact, Terence Young's Wait Until Dark debuted in limited release. It would go on to gross $17.55 million at the US box office, making it the 14th highest grossing film of the year. Her other starring vehicle, Two for the Road, ended up 19th with $12 million. Strangely, and against type at the time, Hepburn received an Academy Award nomination for her performance in the film, but ultimately lost to her sister Catherine. For the race drama, guess who's coming to dinner? It's
0: not really her sister.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Anne Bancroft and Faye Dunaway were among the other nominees, so you could say it was reasonably competitive. Bosley Crowther was the film critic for the New York Times in 1967, and he had a somewhat middling opinion of the start of the film, but said it made up for it with its final act. There are things that seem sheer contrivance to take up running time and stretches of tedious chatter that may get on a viewer's nerves, but once this build-up is accomplished... Once the sinister plot is launched, and the young woman suddenly realises she has been duped and is in grave peril, the shock and suspense of the situation hit the audience with almost the same force I'd imagine as they evidently hit her. And from here on the tension is terrific, and the melodramatic action is wild as the blind woman uses all her courage and ingenuity to foil her assailants and save her life. Roger Ebert was the film critic for the Chicago Sun-Times, and he gave the film three and a half stars out of four upon its release. He echoed many of the same sentiments, saying that after a slow start the plot does seduce you, but said much of the film is based on characters doing stupid things, such as Hepburn never locking in the front door. He also thought Alan Arkham was not very convincing in an exaggerated performance, and thought Hepburn should have received her nomination for Two for the Road. Still, somehow, it got three and a half stars.
0: I know. His review
1: was weird. The film holds a 95% rating on Rotten Tomatoes, but that's based on 19 critics' reviews, which are unfortunately not contemporary. There's only a couple of them that were. It's been featured extensively as one of the prime examples of the home invasion genre. It was ranked 55th on the American Film Institute's list of 100 Years, 100 Thrills in 2001. Knott's other adaptation, Dial M for Murder, was 48. And Hitchcock dominated the list with 9 entries, including 8 in the top half, 5 in the top 20, 3 in the top 10, and Psycho at number 1.
0: So, uh, I suppose it's time now to do our Wait Until Dark quiz. Yeah, yes. I'll go first. Damien Charles Lang was DOP on four of Audrey Hepburn's films. Besides Wait Until Dark, name two of them.
1: Um, that would be How to Steal a Million. Yes. And... Hang on, how many am I naming? Two. Of, yeah. Two of the
0: others. Okay. How to Steal a Million. Uh, My Fair Lady? No. <laughs> <laughs> He did Sabrina, Charade, Paris When It Sizzles, How to Steal a Million and Wait Until Dark.
1: Well, I've, I've really, I've got one question that we haven't got crossed <laughs> out of the five that I've written down. Lee Remick played the role of Susie in the 1966 stage adaptation of Wait Until Dark, and she was nominated for a Tony Award for her role. Was she ever nominated for an Academy
0: Award? Yes. Yeah, very good.
1: (laughs) That's not even how I worded that question, but I had to just think on the fly and change it
0: around. (laughs) Okay. So, who in the cast, apart from Hepburn, was nominated for a Golden Globe for their performance in the film?
1: Uh, No, I know it's not Alan Arkin. Um, Zimbalist? Yes, Sam. That's one for you. Name the other home invasion thriller released in 1967, which was adapted from a famous writer's novel deals with one of the most famous true crime murder cases in American history and which itself garnered four Academy Award nominations.
0: It would have to be In Cold Blood. Damn it. Question three for you. In 1982, HBO made a TV remake of Wait Until Dark. Which actress played Susie Hendrix? Do you have no idea? There was one uh, late 90s or early 2000s which had Marissa Tomei, I think. Uh, That was the theatre play This was an actual TV remake This actress was in A huge film for Mike Nichols And she was in Anne Bancroft No, Catherine Ross
1: oh same film
0: i have to say there are the 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 film's available on youtube and her performance is terrible not only does she not look blind but her lines are so stilted so if you want to have a look at it please check it out it really is something to see you watch the whole thing no okay your turn oh
1: now i've got to find a bloody question for you don't i don't have any more questions left because you've you've killed me One I've got is which superhero does Susie say she is when Sam asks her who's at the door? It's fucking Batman, we've already (laughs) gone over that. The other one is true or false, Audrey Hepburn was a nurse during the Second World War and nurse back to health Terence Young, who'd later direct her in Wait Until Dark. True, because we've been over that. Okay, well, who directed the stage play of Wait Until Dark?
0: Oh gosh, I did know that. Who was it? I can't think of it. Who is it?
1: Really? Am I going to get one here? You're
0: going to get one, Arthur Penn. Oh, freak! I knew I was going to say Arthur Penn. Director of
1: Bonnie and Clyde that year.
0: (sighs) All right. So, what was that? Your third question to me. I'm two on two of three, and you're
1: one of three. One of three. Yeah.
0: So you win. I win. Yeah. So, just as fun, a bonus question: What was the first of four Audrey Hepburn films that Henry Mancini scored? What was the first of four? Yeah. Uh, charade. Breakfast at Tiffany's. Oh, okay. And then he would do Charade, uh, Two Years Later, Two for the Road, and Wait Until Dark. All right, I'm quiz winner. And so I should be, because I love this movie. Yeah, you should be. All right, so rating and final thoughts. Uh, Four and a half stars. It's got a reputation, this
1: film, as uh, still, there's so many articles out there that rank this as... One of the top home invasion thrillers, one of the top thrillers of the 60s. So it it really does have a great reputation. Um, It's a lot of fun. For me, it falls short of being great, but it's still a worthy film to return to every couple of years.
0: I think it does everything a thriller should do. I think it it is just really, really thrilling. Uh, I like the idea that the home invaders are welcome guests for the bulk of the running time. I think the last scene is a terrifying physical fantasy about a woman surviving predatory rape and murder against great odds and doing it single-handedly without a man rushing to save her. Audrey Hepburn is brilliant in it and really touching, and Alan Arkin is frightening as hell. So I I, I think it's great. I love it. And you give it? Four and a half stars. (laughs) So that concludes our episode of Wait Until Dark. Continuing our exploration of women filmmakers, next month we are going to profile Patty Jenkins' 2003 biographical drama, Monster. Uh, Thank you all for listening. Please rate, review, subscribe, all that jazz, and uh, we'll see you next month.